5: apple podcast or wherever you get your podcast i'm off my game today
6: no you're not that's true people are gonna have to start making better content i think we're gonna be talking about this for a long time when you program for everyone you program for no one i think it's that we're a word purpose-driven platform like
7: we're trying to get to substance how okay. was that are you happy with that yeah this is marketing therapy right now it, is. <laughs> it
6: really is yeah. What's up? I'm Laura Carenti. And I'm Alexa Kristen. This is the moment, Adlandia. A moment we haven't talked about, a moment that's coming. This is our last episode with Panoply. What do you think, Laura? I'm getting emotional. Are you? You do look like you're going to cry. She looks like she's going to cry. It's been two
7: years of unbelievable conversations. Um, So many incredible people that we've had the opportunity to meet meet and network with and introduce to the community. Um, And speaking of the community, I think it's been an unbelievable experience to get to have conversations um, with so many listeners who have become a part of the narrative with us and are taking the ideas that they're hearing on the show and applying it to their business and finding ways to
6: advance the industry forward. Is practitioners for practitioners and people who are unwilling to say, yeah, just put it on the spreadsheet. Yeah, that's just what I was told to do. The people who are willing to question and take risk and say, what if, why not, but actually do it. And I think that's kind of the magic of the Adlandia community. Wow, I'm getting emotional too. <laughs> so with that- We have the founders of The Infatuation, Andrew
7: Steinthal and Chris tang Andrew's obviously been on the show. They've had incredible growth over the last year, really, since we spoke with him. And it's interesting to see how their entrepreneurial spirit and certainly ability to be scrappy and network and leverage all the assets that I think we value and turning their business into- A contender in the
6: food space. What I think that you and I find so compelling about them and what's so different about them is what I think Andrew talks a lot about is like we're not going to sell someone. We're actually going to partner with people. And that means their relationships, their pitch, the work that they end up doing is totally different. He's like, we are idea guys that actually do things, build things, make things. We execute. We know how to do it. And that really is the spirit of, I think, Adlandia, the show, and and the community of listeners that we have. So with that, our last episode at the Panoply Studios. We'll be right back.
1: Make the cloud work for you with Cloud
2: Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com.
5: Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing.
7: And we're back in the studio with the co-founders of The Infatuation, Andrew Steinthal. Welcome back to the show, Andrew.
8: Hey, yo. Thanks for having me. We're
7: not talking about the Knicks.
6: And what's up, Chris Dang? Hi. Hi, Chris Dang. Hi. Thanks for coming, you guys.
9: Why can't we talk about the
8: Knicks? I love the Knicks.
6: you talk about the Knicks all the I time. I know. I just tweet about we it a said. lot. Uh, you do.
9: Okay. We don't <laughs> have to talk about it. Let's just read tweets this whole show.
6: Yeah. <laughs> That's a great idea. <laughs> that could
7: be a new segment. Andrew, you came to visit us roughly a year ago. Um, the infatuation was in a much different place, so much that this episode we actually had to go through your comms team to get you on the show. Listen, we're growing. Which is a sign that you've made it.
9: Yeah. yeah. You bureaucracy. It. Once you have bureaucracy in place, that's how you know things are going really king. well. we got layers of approvals. <laughs> <laughs> Just don't tell anyone. Our, our comms guy
8: is also a really good friend of ours and one of our first clients ever from a partnership we did with Whole Foods back in the day.
7: And might love New Jersey more than I do. So... <laughs> Talk to us about what's happened since we last saw you. You've had incredible growth, a big acquisition, some new news coming
9: out. Yeah. Uh, so I guess the last time you were here, Andrew, was pre the Zagat announcement. Yes. So yeah. So we bought Zagat from Google, which was an experience to say the least. But for how much? He can't talk about that. He
6: can't say that. But I do have a question because (laughs) one of the things that people didn't report on is like, how did you actually get it out of the hands of Google? Like, one of the things that people were talking about was Google was sitting on this asset, right? And no one really recognized it. And they didn't really do a lot with it. How did you... Even go to have that negotiation like I think listeners want to know like what was the insight how did you even know Google had it were you just doing research were you guys tracking this stuff and then who did you go and talk to at Google and say you know what let's take it off your hands
9: so I'd love to give myself and everybody a whole bunch of credit about having this like savvy like sit down strategically and then how we're gonna go like knock on Google's door They emailed me on a Friday night, literally, and they said, we're going to sell this. Would you be interested? I was in London with our team, and I just literally, you know, it was probably 11 in the morning San Francisco time, but Friday at 8 o'clock or something like that at night in, in London, and I looked at the email, and I was on my way in to have dinner with our team there, and I just, like, couldn't really even process it, so I just kind of put the email down, had dinner, and then woke up the next morning and got on the plane to come home on Saturday and started just, like, thinking about okay if we did this what would it look like and what w- why would we do it and it really over time as we started talking more and more about it it just seemed like there was a big opportunity there to your point to take advantage of maybe something that you know google didn't take advantage of and maybe we would be very positioned to do something great with it just because of our domain expertise so how,
6: how did they know about you guys
9: i uh, don't know i think they literally like looked me up i'm not kidding it was the weirdest set of circumstances ever hi
6: hi chris you don't know me but i'm google and we own right and was that it was like-
9: literally almost word for word the email? <laughs> i'm not kidding it was like hey i think they said they found my name in pitch book which i still don't even know what that is wow um and they were like yeah we're you know we're gonna sell it and just thought you guys might be interested in it so i actually said to her i was like well can I just call you on Monday because this is way too much for me to try and, you know, digest from an email. Right. I mean, I don't know if she expected me to respond back and be like, yeah, we'll take it. Yeah. (laughs) We're (laughs) in. Yeah. Right. (laughs) But, uh, yeah. And then, so we just, we just started talking and it became apparent that they had a few sort of priorities in mind. One of which being getting a deal done quickly. Um, and I basically kind of hit them and was like, look, you know, Andrew and I are the board and we can get this done on Friday if you want. And, uh, and started that process. But then of course it took, you know, six months to do the deal so so
7: for our listeners give the high level pitch on why infatuation was founded what its mission and purpose is and how this acquisition may change that
9: yeah so i mean what for for a bunch of reasons when we launched this thing in 2009 i think what we were talking a lot about and maybe realized even though we didn't realize we realized it was that there had been this big shift in popular culture in the sense that people treated dining differently, probably because of food network and food television, probably because of early days social media like Facebook and Twitter and people sharing photos. You know, mid, let's call it 2000s, there was this real shift in consumer behavior around dining where like everyone was suddenly interested in food as a passion and not just a thing you did before you went to a concert or whatever, you know, and suddenly, you know, a night out with a date or with a friend was burgers and beers and not, you know, French food and white tablecloths. And what we felt like for a variety of reasons was that there hadn't been a a correlated shift with the sort of people that are covering dining or, you know, in restaurant discovery, meaning that, you know, the New York Times was still kind of talking at a very high level about, you know, restaurant and the chef and the concept of the restaurant. And we felt like, well, let's what if we created something that was like, hey, I know you're trying to figure out where to have a first date in the Lower East Side. Here's the best restaurant that fits into those parameters. And so we started conceptualizing what that might look like and then there became this other layer about well you know 2009 when we started Yelp was new but big and people were trying to figure that whole thing out and even then you felt like there was just this like you know
6: missing major missing elements
9: yeah people were like hated it even though it wasn't even that old right you just Mm -hmm. could tell that there was gonna be a lot of problems you know with with the nature of user generated content especially if there weren't you know smart ways to moderate it and smart ways to sort of make sure that the qu- content is of a certain quality. Um, and then, the, uh, the, you know, additionally, there's like this whole idea of just making sense of the fire hose in that the Internet had produced food blogs of all sorts of, you know, shapes and sizes. And, you know, social media, again, was a place where people would find opinions and see content. So we just kind of wanted to create something that had a very clear point of view that would help people make sense of the fire hose. And then, like, you could agree with us or disagree with us, but at least you knew where we stood. Yeah, and then we wanted to make it funny and entertaining and all that other stuff. But that was that is and was it wasn't is still the the thesis and the the mission for the infatuation is to create situational restaurant recommendations for people and have a relatable voice and be um, you know ha- have the tone that sounds like you're talking to a really knowledgeable friend. Um, and when we started thinking about how difficult that is to scale, meaning that you know you go city by city and you hire teams of writers and editors and you really have to, you know, do your work a certain way so that you're seen as trustworthy and objective. It's hard to become a really big company and, you know, a a global company quickly. So we we knew pretty uh, immediately that we were going to have to confront UGC, user-generated content, just because that's what scales. If you create a platform people fill with content, it can get really big really quickly if you do it right. So, you know, when we started talking about that, there was always a concern about how do you you know connect user generated content of some sort with you know with the Infatuation's editorial voice and not muddy the waters well turns out Zagat was the first ever example of user generated content in the in the dining space back in 1979 when you know Tim and Nina the founders had their friends filling out surveys so that was really the the light bulb moment with the acquisition was can we take the Zagat brand which is arguably the most successful brand in the restaurant discovery space that's ever existed take it back to its roots of user-generated content and create a platform by which we could then have both so we have UGC and editorial content some point people can cross reference both gives us a bigger percentage of the market seemed like a good idea
6: so one of the things that Laura and I hear a lot from our listeners is people talk about doing it but they never do it you guys were colleagues right in the music. In business. the music. Yeah, we business. were
8: friends first. We were friends first and then colleagues.
6: And then colleagues. We never
8: actually worked at the same company. We worked for the same parent company, but we never worked
6: together. Okay. And so when you started talking about it, what was, and I don't believe in the moment. Like, I don't believe in having this ah moment. What were the steps into just doing it, you know, and just like moving it forward?
8: But I mean, look, the, the day that we met, we looked at each other and we're like, we're going to do shit. <laughs> right, like, we're, like, like, like that was. How did we, you know? We just twenty
9: three Coors Lights. Yeah, that, that was pretty much it.
8: <laughs> Actually, but um, you know, we we had. A million different business ideas over the course of time you know we spent 10 years trying to figure out what it was that we were gonna do together you know and at first it was gonna be a record label and once you get in the music business and the, from the years 2002 <laughs> you know 2012 you realize that's not Bomp the best womp. idea yeah, that yeah. that wasn't the best time to do that um, we had a t-shirt company at one point we made one t-shirt had one meeting um, mm-hmm. and we had a bunch of other ideas and You know, the doing part was never going to be the problem with us. We were, we were the thing that kind of brought us together is that we were both (laughs) big time doers of many things. You know, we really enjoyed. Whatever it was, whether it was the music, whether it was going out to eat, whether it was traveling, all of it, you know, and
7: because you know, a lot of people go to meetups and networking events sure. to try to find we
8: never did that, that. like minded yeah.
7: partner. So even just unpacking that, I think, would be helpful for our listeners who are entrepreneurs or thinking about ideas, but are looking for a business partner. Sure. To, to sort of move forward with aside from 23 cores Lights and being doers, like what were the things that you looked for in one another and how you complimented each other to build a business?
8: At first, I don't, I mean, we just got lucky. I mean, we,
9: (laughs) yeah, that's, that's true, actually. It really, I I think we were probably, I think about this a lot because I don't, I actually don't know, but it's funny because that was, it's, sometimes when you, when you tell these stories, you sort of tend to like embellish things and be like, oh, we just knew that we were going to be business partners. And, and usually that's, Bullshit, but actually, in our case, it was hundred percent true that we we became friends because we were somehow certain we were going to be really successful together in business somehow. But I don't really know that either of us could articulate it then. Now, looking at how things have played out, the reason we've been successful is because we're very different, mm-hmm. but we trust each other. So, like, I have a totally different skill set than Andrew does, and vice versa. And like, if you saw our day to day at the office, like we hardly interact with each other because we're both kind of off of our off in our own worlds. But it's so fine because we know we're both trying to do the same things. And then ultimately, like there's no there's none of that nervousness about like, well, what's what's he up to over there? What we you know is he going to do the right thing in that meeting? There's none of that there. So if you have business partners that have the same skill set as you do or that, you know, even if there's like an ounce of, of uncertainty or distrust, it can be really, really, really hard to even make it three steps out of the gate. So I think. He's right. Andrew's right in that we did get lucky for sure because we just happened to have very different skill sets. I think the thing that isn't luck is that for whatever reason, we recognized it. And then once we did end up starting the infatuation, that then, as it started to play out, became really our biggest strength.
6: I think you just gave tons of advice to brands and marketing teams because there's this really interesting thing about pairing people that are actually different but have the same ethos. So often, you know, CMOs and brand leaders are looking for this really cohesive team and they're looking at attributes that are too similar. And there's like something there in the tension of being different that's brilliant.
9: Yeah, it's really necessary. But yeah. the thing is, is the, the craziest part about all of this is that I feel bad for people that are just sort of having a checklist of, you know, I, I know the feeling of wanting to start something and wanting to start a business. And I understand and totally relate to that. But I, it's, I can't imagine having like a checklist of being like, OK, I need an idea. And then yes. I need a business partner. And then I need a business plan. And, and having to sort of like check those things off in order because that's never how it happens. It's yeah. always so messy. And, you know, you start doing one thing and then another thing happens and then something else comes up. And you maybe chase an opportunity or you don't. And that's the hardest part to tell. Like when you give people advice about how to start a business or how to find a co-founder... You can definitely give them fundamental pieces of advice like this, but so much of it is just like you got to just start doing stuff and seeing what happens.
6: So what was the first thing that the infatuation did?
9: Well, there's a there's a story around this that's really funny, actually, because we've been talking for a while about doing what ended up becoming at the time called immaculate infatuation. And the the only reason we actually pulled the trigger was that at the time I was single and Andrew wrote me into doing some, like, New York Post's, like, Bachelor oh, wow. thing. wow. I haven't
8: thought about this I just found it. I just moved. <laughs> no, I,
9: I, I, only, I blocked that on my mind, obviously, because I just moved and I God. found the newspaper. I have a bunch of them. It's hilarious. So he, Andrew was like, oh, my God, you just got to do this because he was just so excited about me embarrassing myself in New York media. Yes. But, um, so I was like, you know what? Fine. I'll do it as long as we launch this website thing and I'll mention it in my blurb in the New York Post. And that nice. was a hundred percent the catalyst as to why we finally did it. Was it was like, all right, fine. If I'm gonna do this embarrassing thing, get me something out of it. And that was what happened.
6: Wait, so so what, what was the traffic Wait, yeah. like?
9: Oh God, who it knows? Like four people. I don't know. <laughs> I really don't know. But that that was it. And that's the thing is, it's always that's the hardest step is always just saying, cool, we're gonna do it. Because once we started doing it, whatever whatever we got from that New York Post thing, which was nothing, didn't matter. What we did though was we had this thing that we could now put into a newsletter that Andrew put, you know, we literally, between the two of us, put every person we knew on this email and we sent it out. And that was the beginning and of the whole thing. It. And
8: that yeah. was it. And, we're, and look, it, our careers in the music business came into play in a huge way. You know, we, yeah. I was a publicist, Chris was a marketing guy, and like we used our skill sets to drive this thing
7: attributes that I love most about the both of you and I think it comes through very clearly when you partner with you to do business or the way you talk about your brand is the sort of scrappiness and the leveraging of a network and the human connection and authenticity that you both bring to the marketplace which is so refreshing how are like what do those skill sets look like for the both of you and then how are you bringing that into your company with the employees that you're hiring
8: Sure. I mean, look, our as a PR guy in music, right? Like, you get handed a bunch of crappy bands a lot of the time, and you gotta hustle your ass off to try and make do something, find find something that could potentially work. But then all of a sudden, you get one or two good ones, and you're like, oh, this is you know, you and you can feel the audience talk back to you, right? Like immediately, and that, and that that's the kind of thing that happened with us, where we put this out into the world that, you know. We weren't sure. It could have been a not so great band or it could have been somebody, you know, one that people wanted to hear more from. And immediately we, hear, we you know, felt this pull. And once we felt the pull from the public, we were like, let's go. And we kind of, you know, took this. We have one of the things that attracted each other to one another is just the drive part of it. Right. We were both really determined to be successful, to win, to build something, to whatever it was within our careers or whatever we were going to build. And once we started rolling, that was that was how we went and then and that really helped push us into you know what ultimately became leaving our jobs five years later and building a company and I think that has always been the fundamentals of of what we are we 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 want it badly and we want to do it our way and we want to be honest and real and transparent and you know that's, you know, I, I hired another publicist, you know, I'm a, I run our sales, I'm our CRO and whatever my I've got, ai brought another publicist in that we I worked with in the music business, her name's Savannah. And she's crushing in sales. She'd never done sales in her life. Neither had I, you know, and so like, I don't know what people are supposed to be doing in these roles. I've just been figuring it out along the way. And being pretty real with the brands and just trying to create real human relationships with people and expose them to the infatuation in our audience and all this cool stuff from culture that we can bring to the table for them.
6: How many brand partnerships have you done to date? Do you know? Uh,
8: we've probably worked with over 150 brands or so.
6: Wow, what does success look like?
8: Success looks like this: the infatuation existing forever. The infatuation and now is a gap. You know, being the default for restaurant recommendations everywhere forever and building a really sustainable successful business what that what eventually evolves and how that how we get there I don't know but
6: how are brands finding you I was just I just said off mic I was telling a brand about you today and they're like I thanks. haven't heard of them
8: and please I was like, please keep doing that well it takes <laughs> cool. look that that's how brands find us people mm-hmm. who know tell people or people there is generally one person inside an organization that's like sees the stuff we're doing and is like I want to work with them or like I spend all of my time trying to find those people unearth those people you know look our, our business is built on integrated brand partnerships right like we have a you know what Chris was talking about right we have, we have this audience that we've developed a real personal human relationship with that you know that we feed social capital to that we are you know we're credible like we pay for our own meals we can't you can't buy the infatuation stamp of approval right and like we are really selective with who writes for us on the editorial side but at the same time and like we're incredibly selective and proactive with what brands we work with you know we only want to work with brands that fit our brand and that our audience will feel like there's an authentic connection to like we can't you know we can't go work sorry, McDonald's, but we can't, like we will, we will lose the credibility and connection to the audience. But right. There's
9: another key part of this though, which is that we're not building businesses that people who advertise with, you know, digital media companies are used to. Right. So like we don't produce content for volume sake. Yep. We just don't do it because that's not what we're building. We're not building a media company. We're building a resource that if you need to find a restaurant on a Saturday night, you come to and you find the restaurant, you get in, you get out, you're done. Like we don't, it's not about getting you to consume as much content as possible. Actually, we actually have to think about it, even though we measure ourselves differently because maybe it's not a bad thing if somebody comes to our site, spends three minutes on it and finds a restaurant and leaves.
7: The interesting thing that you're bringing up and is a conversation that I think is getting more attention in the marketplace is the new standards or need to evolve the standards of measurement in this industry, right? Like we've had a ton of conversations with different entrepreneurs and founders and media company executives about measuring things like overnight ratings on television, click-through rate, volume of impressions. You talk about the infatuation being around forever. What does that look like? And these conversations and brands are coming in, how are you getting them to understand that the value of what our community is bringing doesn't fit in that Excel spreadsheet?
9: This is why we do so many events. Because when you literally put on a food festival and in New York City it sells out and then tickets are going for three times face value on StubHub the day after it sells out, and then people show up and there's a thousand people outside the venue before the doors open and they're going nuts when they get inside. Like, that's how you, you look at brand partners or whoever and you go, this is it. Yeah. And that's that's the thing is we end up in. Do that. they get it? Yeah. It's not hard. Like when you see it, like we there's a famously legendary man named Shep Gordon, who's now one of our advisors. He's, he's read his book or watch his documentary. It's called they call uh, it's called Superman's the documentary. And he's a he's basically the man that's responsible for creating the celebrity chef. He's, you could do a whole podcast with him. We'll line that up someday. Yes, great. But he's a legend, and and he we basically paid him to speak at uh, our first food festival, right? And he's this guy that literally like created Emerald and that was like where it started. And then man, does he
6: feel bad about it?
9: No, because he <laughs> the way he looks at it is he brought he brought food culture into people's people's homes mm-hmm. in a way that it wasn't existing before, right? Mm-hmm. Julia Child, sure, but like you know he did it in a different way. And and anyway, so he's this like legend, and we had basically told him, I was on a phone call with him prepping him to come to this thing and speak. And, um, he came and, you know, he was like, yeah, I get it. I think I get it after we were sort of talking about what we are and all that stuff. And he came to the festival, he hung out all day. He was talking to people and just like having a great time. And then he emailed me the next day, he had just gotten to Vegas and he emailed me and he was like, I just keep thinking about what I saw there. And I'm so happy because it makes me realize that this still exists, that like young people in and around the food community, they're they're passionate about your thing and it exists. And I'm so happy about that. And so, you know, that's what that story repeats itself over and over again. When people who don't know much about us show up in our world, um, especially in that sort of in real life environment, because you just look around and you see a really engaged community of people spending a lot of time just hanging out with each other and sharing like my, you know, they're like-minded people sharing experiences and, Um, And the fact that we can have them lined up around the block at, you know, a stadium in Forest Hills tells a story that's really hard to tell with, you know, stuff that fits in a spreadsheet.
6: If You don't know when you go to a media partner what they do well and what they don't do well.
7: We want to buy the thing that is not for sale. Well, and also
6: and it's and it's also the truth of what makes that company important. It makes it valuable. I don't want, right? Like, don't give me the frill. Give me the meat. Just to add to that point, like, so, and this requires
7: the industry. And I'd be curious to know how you're going out and pitching your unique IP, right? Because so many publishers walk in, and the first thing that you see in a presentation is, here's how many people we reach. Right. Like, why are you competing on scale? Because if I want scale, there's probably two platforms that I'm going to to get it.
9: By the That's way, a commodity. And scale's a myth.
7: Scale is a myth. But the thing that you don't get to so many times in that presentation is what is the unique thing that I can't get anywhere else in the market? Sell me that. Right.
9: Problem is, is all of this takes discipline that many companies d- can't afford it. Like it's either you, they can't afford it because they don't have enough money to take this sort of like, you know, we're going to put our, our stake in the ground and this is what we're going to do. And you're going to buy it or you're not until you realize like we're lucky enough we've had you know investors and partners that have agreed with us that you do it a certain way and build quality over time because we say no to all kinds of things you know like the, the, we I talk about a lot that like we're probably more defined by the stuff we don't do than the stuff that we do like what's the stuff you don't do digital video for the sake of an advertiser podcast because it's a hot it's a hot sector. You know, how many digital how many mistakes have been made in digital media and publishing because people start creating content for what they think advertisers want, not because they think an, a, a an end user or reader wants it.
7: That's I mean, right. I think we've seen the headlines for how that ends.
9: Exactly, but but we're still there because the brands are still RFPing about, "Hey, we want, well, all we want are video views. Well, you know that like most of those are bullshit. So cool, you can have them, not with us, but you can probably get them somewhere. But do you want to actually watch someone inter- interact with your product in a meaningful way? If you do, we can talk.
5: Yeah,
8: We're marketing partners and executors. We don't fit in the spreadsheet at all. We can play in the spreadsheet, but if you don't know who we are and you just look at the spreadsheet, you're not going to understand why to work with There's us. There's no context. Right? There's no context. So for us, we are very proactive working, trying to work brand direct. Right, so we work with American Express, we work with Don Julio over at Diageo, we work with Smartwater Water inside of Coca Cola and some of the other brands there, um, and and we're super proactive with building long-term partnerships with brands that align well to our values and that are trying to you know reach our audience, you know the, the kind of audience that we reach, which is the you know young influencer, but real influencer, not like nonsense marketing term influencer, people in their circles who are influential, right? The first ones in who really care because ultimately if you care and you spend the time figuring out where you're going to eat, right? You also care about what you're wearing, what car you're driving, what you're listening to, literally everything. Good taste is good taste. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we are, we, we have an audience full of people with good taste and, you know, it's really hard to reach those people, too. And so much of what we do is bringing those people out into real life. Last year, we did 65 events across all across the country and, you know, into the world in London as well. And, you know, we're we are able to cultivate localized audiences in a lot of different pockets that brands can interact with. Brands have goals, they have a whole narrative they want to ladder up to. We can be a great partner to help them do that. But it's a lot easier for us to do that on the front side of the RFP than on the back.
7: You've got a couple of announcements we've heard that you want to share on the show.
9: Yeah, sure, so um, we do a food festival. Not sure if everyone's aware, but now you are, <laughs> uh, called EatsCon, and it uh, it happens in uh, both New York and Los Angeles. Um, the Los Angeles Festival is coming up this year on May 18th and 19th, and the most important part of that little phrase there is the and. Uh, this will be the first time we're doing two days. Um, so we're scaling it up in Los Angeles, which is really, really exciting, and um, just sort of you know building on what we started two years ago in that market. Which is, the whole concept is really that, you know, as we built this massive audience of young people uh, around the brand and around the content, we realized that our audience and really probably an even larger audience of young people who are social media savvy and, you know, the people that walk around this planet between the age of 20 and, you know, 35, they're not going to like the New York City Food and Wine Festival because that's just not how they live their lives. And it's not lo- what necessarily what they're looking to do, which is... Dropping $850 for a weekend pass to go, like, eat a little tiny bite of prosciutto and, you know, catch a celebrity chef, you know, for 30 seconds. So we wanted to build something that felt more community driven, that felt more uh, focused around the restaurants. We, we talk about it being like a music festival, but where the restaurants are the headliners. Um, and we program it with, with speakers and we have bands, and it's an awesome day, uh, and now two days, but uh, it's really an interesting part of our business that's growing. and. It was a, you know, an example of us moving into another space that's adjacent to us, but feels very related to what we do. Where we just saw a big white space, and there's other spaces like that that I think we're going to move into soon as well. But um, Beyond food? Um, potentially. Okay. Someday. But there's stuff in the food space that's still wide open that we want to go gobble up. But there are other sort of lifestyle things out there that are not being as well addressed so i think we'll probably chase those things down first there's a big hole in travel i don't know that we're going to jump right into travel but there's a big massive hole there we know that for a fact because we get people hitting us up all the time being like hey i read the rome recommendations but where do i stay Textrex, our texting platform we get asked all kinds of questions that have nothing to do with restaurants inside of that platform because people trust us so they'll start asking us dating Yeah, dating. What should I watch? I mean, people literally hit up that platform and ask us what should they be watching while they order delivery or something like that. So there's there's a bunch of interesting stuff. I want someday for us to be able to serve people in the way that we do around restaurant recommendations with uh, and help them make other decisions. It's, I don't really know what that means yet. Maybe like, a
7: recommendation brand as opposed to a sure. lifestyle brand. Is yeah. that fair? It's like a little bit of it a It just creative. comes down
9: to helping people make decisions. You know, like we use this, we talk about social capital, right? There's, that, there's a great deal of social capital in being the person in your group of friends or in your family who can pick a great restaurant or- Great order, bottle of wine. Order a bottle of wine off a wine list. Totally. All of those things. So- You know, and that's what's actually way more powerful than just being like, yeah, we give people restaurant advice. We give them the social capital that makes them more important in the office, better at dating, all these things that are really important to people in their lives.
6: So you guys had a pretty good investment from someone in Hollywood. We did. And I assume that everything you're talking about kind of head nods to a vision that you guys have that uh they bought off on can you talk about that at all
9: yeah um so yeah we we just raised uh a bunch of money from jeffrey katzenberg who had the movie executive best known for his uh role in founding dreamworks but um he's uh obviously a visionary and you know has done a lot of amazing stuff in his career Um, But one thing that apparently he wanted to do was to raise a big venture fund and to start investing in businesses. Um, So he built a team uh, which was for us very interesting and felt very in line with the kind of business that we're building, which is uh, the main partners there kind of split between content and media uh, executives from DreamWorks and Disney. This woman, Ann Daly, who ran DreamWorks uh, next to Jeffrey for a very long time. Um, and they have an L.A. office of uh, some other people that are just brilliant and come from that world. And then there's a team in San Francisco that is um, led by uh, a guy named Sujay Joshua, who was the CFO at Dropbox, and a bunch of other Dropbox people, and sort of a more tech-focused um, point of view. So those two things together felt very relevant to what we're building, which is you know a great product with great content inside of it. Um, but it was also, for us, exciting to think about partnering with someone that understands culture and understands how to storytell and understands how brands matter and how, you know, what we're building ultimately is a big brand that people need to trust, um, and need to find useful and indispensable to their daily lives. So we have been, this is our third round raising money and we've been very fortunate, you know, throughout the past of having great investors that, you know, really understood our vision and understood the timeline and understood that we were going to do things a different way than maybe conventional wisdom says we should based on whatever bucket you want to put us in. But, um, so this big around the Series A, we were pretty nervous. Like, can you find those same kind of people with that same kind of patience and that same outlook on the world when they're writing a really big check? And I don't know that the answer would have been yes, had we not found Wonderco which is the name of the fund, uh, and Jeffrey and Ann and Sujay. So it's early days. We just closed the deal in August and, you know, are starting off a big, ambitious year together. But so far, it's been great. And we have exciting plans. And they definitely... You know that was the thing is every time we'd sit down to talk they definitely agreed and believed in the same things we did which is let's go out let's build a really big business but let's build it the right way and understand that these things take time that you can't just build something that can change culture within two years it's gonna take ten
6: so Andrew you're gonna tell us about a big brand partnership that you guys are doing yes and that you're super excited about. yeah we're
8: really excited we're doing We are we us and uh, T Brand Studio from the New York Times um, collaboratively are doing a podcast with BMW. Uh, I know, you know, look, we we are the Infatuation as a brand has never done a podcast before. Original um, content, original content, yeah, not ads. Um, nope. And a, a story about cities and looking through the lens of restaurants and and how they impact the culture and how you know they drive. Different parts of different cities, Um, and it's it's just been a really really interesting experience. Definitely a unique experience to work alongside the Times to do this. You know, a leap of faith by BMW to do something different. You know, this all came from from them being very interested in having partners collaboratively come to them with ideas. What's the name Um, of the show? It's called The Special.
6: What was your role? In in the in the concept and in the production, like what was the infatuation's role?
8: You know, the New York Times is definitely leading the charge on the production of the podcast, right? That is what they do, um, so they they are they are they are driving that. But you know, we were very instrumental in in the whole like conceptualizing of the idea, and and then we have a whole plan that we're rolling out that has some really interesting content on top of Instagram using BMW's with our writers in different markets we're producing a big event in LA that um, is gonna be really fun that you know that's part of our part of the deal so
7: yeah very cool interesting partnership. be fun to see how it plays out before we let you go since we are recording here in New York must go to restaurant off the top of your head go
8: I still for Charles. If people haven't been there yet, that place is incredible. I've never been there. It's Where it's hard it? to get into. It's in the West Village. But can we
7: say we know you?
9: I,
8: you good that luck. doesn't work. Yeah, it doesn't work. We don't can pull we those.
9: We don't pull those levers. Yeah, there's
8: we don't have relationships. <laughs> I'll try. I'll we'll try. try. That's fine.
9: <laughs> Chris. Uh, there's a great Vietnamese restaurant in Greenpoint called D on D that's Mm -hmm. really amazing and just like one of my favorite spots right now so awesome yeah
6: before we go is our game kill by DIY
8: can it
9: all be Knicks related sure no
6: come on come on I'm (laughs) so over it
8: I would definitely buy the Knicks somehow
6: I always see your tweets because I'm like fuck my entire
8: Twitter existence is is sports Twitter that's what and
6: I must have no life because you're always at the top of my feed
8: (laughs) (laughs) because you engage Keep, just totally. don't don't like them, then you won't see totally.
7: them. So you're buying the Knicks. I'm
8: going to buy the Knicks. Uh, I'm going to kill the traditional media agency model. Um,
6: More on that another <laughs> time.
8: Yeah, and uh, what am I doing now? Buying things? No, what are no, you doing what yourself? Are you doing I yourself? Bought that. Builds a printer that actually works.
6: That's a good one. I hate printers. They really they all, suck. And
8: like every time I need one, it just doesn't work.
6: They all break. I know. Standing, right, saying, first
9: time playing. First time playing. This is exciting.
6: Kill. What would you kill? Twitter. What? what? it's because of your nicks.
9: No, it's not. (laughs) It's because literally, I'm just getting to this point where like I literally cannot just watch people take hot sideline takes on like every topic in the world and always be wrong and always be just like riling people. Like it's, we got to find a better way to have discourse because it's a great platform. I think it's awesome. But like that, there are some crazy shit going on on twitter that we could probably just like do without
0: did so. you see
6: the jack Kara swisher live tweet interview <laughs> i tried to
9: follow but it's like one of those things that i'm like now my blood pressure is high and i need to go like have a glass of wine to just calm down <laughs> like i swear maybe i'll just kill my phone maybe it's just my phone i don't want to kill another company i'll just kill my phone all right okay. all right <laughs> good what would you buy another phone
6: <laughs> <laughs> good very good and what would you do yourself
9: Um, doing myself. I would love to build something that actually, like, actually build something with my hand. Like, build a piece of furniture or something. What would you make? I don't know. Like a... I mean, based on the amount of money that, like, Scandinavian-style chairs seem to sell for, I'd probably... (laughs) throw some sheepskin on a modern piece of wood and start a whole new business or something design within reach that is so (laughs) niche man yeah dude i'm not gonna be involved in that business Super niche.
7: if you don't know about the infatuation go check it out (laughs) after listening to this show andrew chris always a pleasure congratulations on all your success if people want to build an event a partnership or just figure out where they need to go eat tomorrow night how do they get in touch with you
9: tweet at andrew
8: at Shmooey S-C-H-M-O-O-E-Y bring it on I won't see it you will he never will, see it
6: because he won't have a phone he's on Twitter he's on his day. way to buy a new I one alright guys thank, thank you so much thank you so, much. Thank you. Fun. so I could have gone won. on for like I could have went on forever like where, that are, was we, where so are we where are we going to
7: dinner that conversation I think left me thinking about some of the key insights that Chris particularly was hitting on around social capital And not being willing to compromise your core values for ad dollars and being comfortable in saying, like, you want to come and engage a community and create an experience that is going to drive lifetime value or long lasting relationships with our audience? Let's talk. However, if you're looking for scale and some sort of commoditized format, like, we're not for you. And I think... What that will do for their business is indicative of, of where they're headed and the acquisitions they're making, the investments that they're taking, and thinking about how it stands up in the current marketplace. And I think what we've seen over the last few
6: months is that people were chasing scale, which he was like, it's a myth. One thing we didn't ask that we should have asked. Again, we could have gone on for four hours. Was how long is your pipeline? Like how long? How long does it take to get someone to actually buy and do an activation? And how long does it take for them to get comfortable with that sale? Right. Exactly. Right. Which I think you
7: know, so many people are quick to close the sale, but as you get into the weeds of the project, you start to realize that maybe there's not a
6: whole lot of alignment here. I think that's a great point, Laura, and I think that. Uh, Andrew also what he was saying is like we do it in front in the process in front of the work the process in front of the work is like let's get to know each other I want to understand you what are you really trying to do who are you really trying to speak with and what are you what's your equity right and those details are not in an RFP nope Not in a standard RFP, right? Right. And they even said, yeah, we get RFPs. But the way they are handling that, the way they think about the RFP, totally different. Infatuation. They're going places. And so are we.
7: So are we. So speaking of that, we are going to take a brief hiatus. And we will be announcing shortly on our Twitter at Atlantia Podcast where we will be set up next. And how you can join us. We must thank... All of our friends and family at Panoply for giving us this incredible platform and opportunity. In particular, Jacob Weisberg. Matt Turk. Andy Bauer. We have to thank our most incredible production partners who have stuck with us to make the
6: show what it is. So big thank you to Laura Mayer, Cameron Drews. Laura Morris and our own Dina. The producers we've worked with and we've had the opportunity to get to know are phenomenal. You guys should reach out to them because they know what's happening in the audio space. They can come in, they can help your brand, they can liaise with the studios. They're amazing. And we are even going to give you Dana's email in the description of the show so you can get a hold of her because she is one of the best.
7: So Atlantia... We will be back, not in two weeks, but soon enough. Thank you so much for sticking with us. We can't wait to share what's next. See you soon. Full disclosure, our opinions are our own.
2: It's brand new season two. Rachel Zoe here, and we're going back to the Rachel Zoe Project for a very special takeover on my podcast, Climbing in Heels. Come with me as I take you back to season one to give you all the behind the scenes details and drama. I'll be joined by some special guests that'll be helping me share the real stories behind the most iconic moments in the show. So do not miss this special takeover of Climbing in Heels. It's going to be bananas. Listen to Climbing in Heels with Rachel Zoe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts.